when you talk about the lazy equity, right? So if you think this through, you know, people have, you know, $120,000 sitting in their own principal place of residence. And I, I'm a big believer that, you know, your asset is a liability. If you're not using that lazy equity to diversify and, you know, use that to your advantage. Hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Buy Property Podcast. Today, this is just an extension for an episode where we are talking about six strategies to make six figures. We are discussing developers, JV or joint venture agreements. Again, let's introduce my co-host, Cheryl Leong. Cheryl, how are you today? Yeah, fantastic, Moss. And this is a really, I mean, all of them are really interesting topics. But this I know a lot of people are keen to find out about because, you know, we have developers that are always looking for JV partnerships. I think it's really important to highlight what are some of the things that if you're looking and considering doing a joint venture with a developer, what are the pros and the cons and the things to consider? Because it is one of those areas where you can make great returns, but then you haven't considered the risks. It can be a, a painful, painful experience as well. So take us through, Cheryl, talk to us a bit about what is the minimum that you need in order to kick off a JV, you know, what sort of returns people promise, you know, what type of JV partnerships are out there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll I'll highlight the ones that I've been exposed to or we've done or I've seen put together. So you've got JV partnerships where you've got a developer who they put in the sweat equity. So they're the development manager, they find the site, they, they project manage the site, but they don't put their own money into it. Some people put a little bit of money into it just so that they, there, is, there is a bit of that equity in there. However, a JV partner might fund the, most of the funds that are required. So in that situation, you know, every, every situation is quite different, but there can be a 50-50 profit split or there might be a 60-40, it really comes down to what the developer and the JV partner decides. So that's that's one where you're sort of a straight profit profit share. Other situations that, that can be done is that a JV partner is an investor and simply gets a, a fixed return on their money. So uh, the developer, same thing, runs the project, does everything, in instance, acquires the site, everything else from a, from a project management point of view. However, an investor, because they may want to be able to manage their risks or ensure there's a, there's a, a fixed return. So be wary, there's never a guaranteed return. You cannot guarantee your returns. There's this sort of you're hoping and 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 uh, that you will get a return. So that might range from, you know, very. And we'll talk about this a little bit further. I love love for you to share. There's going to be different levels of return depending on where you are in a project, and that talks about the risk of um, where that project is. So that could be ten percent, twelve, fifteen, twenty. You know, be a bit wary if it goes past that sort of 15 20 is fairly high those are some of the ways obviously there are varied ways of doing that but those are the main main strategies that we've so seen how how does it work let's let's unpack this in a bit more detail how does a jv partnership work you know I, is it a loan agreement with the developer 
Is it, you know, you're sitting in the trust, you know, I presume that, you know, both of them would be, you know, different circumstances. Talk us through a bit of that as to, okay, you know, how does this typically work? You know, if I have, say, $100,000, I come to you, Cheryl, as a developer, you know, uh, and it's your project, for example, and you're giving me fixed returns, what 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 it would look like? Yeah, so it would look, if it's a fixed return, I would typically enter into sort of like a loan agreement where the investor is not actually a part of the the project themselves. So they're not a unit holder, they're not a director, they don't really have any particular say or control in that regard, apart from saying, here's, here's my funds that are being loaned to that particular project. So really important um, when we talk about legal agreements and, and considerations is that you're being absolutely clear as to where those funds are being loaned to and who, and how they're being used and they're going to be used for that particular project. Yeah. So in that regard, they're not a part of that project per se. They're simply a lender. And it's an important point that you make there. I think, you know, you hear people offering fixed returns or even money in perpetuity. So they're giving you monthly returns, right? So uh, what people need to understand and realize is that are you lending against a particular project or are you lending it to a development fund who is giving returns to everyone, right? And so I've seen this both ways, right? I've seen developers offering monthly returns. And, you know, mind you that, you know, no developer can ever give monthly returns because they don't have a monthly return coming to them. It's not that, you know, they're selling a bedroom (laughs) and one house and two houses. That's not how development works. It's sell everything, make money. So it's chunky money that is coming to them, right? And so every time a developer offers you that monthly return, know that instead of a million dollars, they might have raised a million 20 or or 1.2 million. And that extra 200,000 is basically coming back to you in, in the form of your monthly returns that they are paying you back. So you know, it's it's a big red flag and we'll talk about some of the cons at the very end of the stage as well as to, you know, what are some of these red flags that we need to talk about. Same scenario, let's change it a bit. $100,000, I come to you, Cheryl, you are a development manager, you are running a development and I come to you and say, hey, I have $200,000, I have a friend who has $200,000, you know, we coming in together at $400,000, how does the structure work? How does it this look like? Well, I, I, I buy the first class tickets to to Europe to begin with. And then potentially majority <laughs> of the developers do, oh, I think. Sorry, sorry, I shouldn't be I shouldn't be saying that there might be people, there might be investors in, in on this podcast. No, I do not buy first class, it's generally just business. Uh, no, so well I, again it can be structured a, a few ways. The most common would be you might have unit holders. You know your your investors are part of the uh, the unit holders. The developer potentially is also another unit holder. However, often what we also see is that the developer has a separate development management agreement that they enter into a development management agreement with the development company. So speak to your your accountant and your lawyers about how to set up structures. Because there's going to be different ways. Sometimes there's shareholdings. There's sometimes there's unit holdings. Yes, these are some of the ways that you can do. Really important that that really means that you are part of the development company. That you have some level of say. 
that you are also liable for any particular loan that you enter into. I think it's a very distinct difference between if you are lending to a project but you are not part of the project, Yes, you're not exposed to that risk in terms of the lending because often if you're entering into a loan agreement, you are joint and severably liable for that. So if you have a million dollar loan, if you're liable for that loan as well. And that's the biggest risk, right? I think, you know, when you think about, you know, getting the fixed returns versus becoming an equity partner of a project, you know, through a structure or a JV agreement or a written JV agreement in place, ultimately what you're doing is you're exposing your own assets to the development as well. And so if you're not protected enough, you need to consider various trust, trust structures. You know, you might be bringing a completely separate family trust, for example, into that unit trust as well. So always speak to your accountant, always speak to your property lawyer, always speak to your financial planner or financial advisor and understanding what's the best way to protect yourself and your assets and not expose them to a development. Because as a development, any financier who is at the other end providing construction finance, they will take anything for security, right? They'll take your bloody life, you know, as a security if they need be. And we'll talk about some of these cons when we are talking about the disadvantages of, you know, some of these weird structures that people go into without reading the legals. Let's start off on the on the fun note. Let's start off on the pro side of things. You know, let's not talk negative. Let's talk positive first. Yeah. And so talk to us, Cheryl, as to what does that mean in relation to, you know, the positives, the, the good news, you know, turning that $200,000 into, you know, $40,000 pretty much in one year, right? Yeah. And, and I guess this is the thing where you can leverage and if you're working with an experienced developer with a good track record and everything goes to plan as best as possible, like you get, you get some pretty decent returns on, on, on your money. You know, I've, I've put in money into, into projects with who I, I knew the developer. I understood the project. I understood the risk and I got good returns out of that, which I wouldn't have received anywhere else. So I think that's one of the, the, the pros for that. You get to learn how to actually run developments. Maybe, not, you know, you, you, you're exposed to it a lot more than you would if, especially if you don't have time or the knowledge to actually uh, do developments yourself. This is one way to learn along the way if you're part of, part of a development. If you have fixed returns, again, the developer is signing up to a fixed return. So if they don't make a great return on on the project, they don't really need to give you all the money back. But if they do the right thing, they will, right? So they will honor that that return. So if they're saying that they're going to give you 20% return, however, there was no return on the project, they've got to come up with the money in some way or form. And again, going back to the fact that if you don't have the time or the capacity or the knowledge and you've got lazy money that's sitting there in the bank, better off doing something and getting a return that is 10 times more than you would otherwise. So those are the main cons, uh, sorry, so those are the main pros about it. Those are the good bits about it. I'm going to get you to talk about the cons because that's... I think one last thing that I've just, you know, now thought this through, you know, when you talk about the lazy equity, right? So... 
if you think this through, you know, people have, you know, $120,000 sitting in their own principal place of residence. And I, I'm a big believer that, you know, your asset is a liability. If you're not using that lazy equity to diverse, uh, diversify and, you know, use that to your advantage. And so while you might only pay 6%, you know, cost of capital or, you know, the repayment cost to the bank, you might be able to generate 10, 15, 20% return. And so that delta of, you know, between say, you know, 4% all the way up to 16 to even sometimes 20% is quite attractive. And so, especially like people who are in their 40s and 50s and 60s, they tend to get attracted to some of these things quite actively. I've seen retirees looking at, you know, oh, this is an amazing investment. And, you know, it's important to consider some of the, the negative, some of the disadvantages, some of the cons that are there in relation to, you know, these returns coming back to you and you could make, there is countless number of examples that are out there where developer has gone bust, you know, taking all people with them. It was a good development. It was making money and yet it failed. And so, you know, let's talk about some of those red flags, Cheryl. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of the red flags, see, it's a consideration with anything. You've got to make sure that you do proper due diligence about the developer. Make sure that they know what they're talking about, that they've got a level of experience that you would trust them with your and how they deal with a project. Um, the other thing to consider is, you know, your your own experience with understanding projects so that you can have an idea as to whether it's going it's it's tracking it's tracking along as well as it should or that you understand the development process definitely that you can ask questions when you feel that something's not quite right so definitely doesn't necessarily mean that you that you've got to be an expert i think having some level of knowledge is going to be very helpful because then you know when when you've passed the risky bits, yes, and if you're a developer, you you're you're used to asking the questions. You're used to asking the question of the builder or the developer or what's happening with Margaret. But if you're not, then you're going to be stuck. You're you're going to be a bit. You're you're sort of in the dark about yes and things. Like but that. I think understanding the deal is quite important and quite the key. You know, no matter how naive you are, no matter how and educated you are in relation to the development space, it's always important to spend time understanding the feasibilities. Feasibilities are not rocket science. You know, you can test those numbers out. You can pick up the phone and, you know, give calls to the real estate agents as to, okay, hey, how much are these selling for? You would have access to the plans. You know, you would know as to, okay, what is a typical bill cost looking like? You know, you can do that level of first level due diligence. And so I always counsel people to understand to how to read the feasibilities and call BSBS at the first stage at least. Because if you don't understand the deal, then I don't think that you have any right to invest into a, a deal. You might as well loan a money to a gambler, right? Because you, you don't understand what they're doing. Like, you know, so it's, it's important that there is some level of education that comes together with even investing. And so, asking the right questions and making sure that you're comfortable with the numbers and the feasibility that has been presented to you uh, is quite the key. It's quite important. And also like a good segue is where are you entering into the deal, right? You know, I always counsel people who are doing this for the first time, don't start, don't enter a deal at the start. Because when you think about the developments, 
building is the easy part, right? The majority of the risk is finding the right side where the numbers work, getting it through the council, making sure that the council approves it, and then making sure that the engineer can build what the council is planning approved it because, you know, there could be issues with stormwater management, there could be issues with legal point of discharge, there could be so many things with the site and the slope and the retention that could go wrong. And so if you come, and that's where I would say 70% of the risk is, right? You know, the numbers and the feasible, 30% of the risk is in the build where the build numbers moves, et cetera, all of that. And so if you're taking that 70% risk out, yes, you're getting a slightly lower return, but it's almost like you have you've gone through, you know, the the risky part and you're entering into where it's almost like, you know, you can see the end, you you know where this is going. Um, they have done even pre-sales in some instances, you know, they've got out and done the pre-sales. So you're, you're getting that validation through as well. And so you start small and then start taking more risk as to which stage of the project you want to enter into in some of these deals rather than just going into a development fund. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So in terms of the stages as well, like if you've got a um, a good example is a project that is not DA approved. So there's a bit of risk there and you're putting money in, you're like, well, if it doesn't get approved, what happens? As opposed to a project that is already DA approved, you've got the builder in place, there's just a shortfall in terms of the funds that need to be put in for the construction loan. So there's there's less risk there already because most of the most of the costs that are that that are part of that feasibility have really been ticked off. Yes, correct. In that sense, yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's also important to understand that people do offer crazy returns, and I always find that that's the first flag. If someone is offering me thirty five percent return cash on cash, I'd be like, "But why? Yes, why, why are you offering? So why is it so risky?" Yeah, like what are you asking me for that 35% of the return that you're giving me? Are you going to, you know, take my life away? <laughs> ask me to write off my house or so understand that, you know, the the return is always attached to the risk. You know, no one would offer you 30, 35% return without asking you to sign your life away or signing your house away. And I'm I know that I'm talking quite in a much more aggressive fashion or I'm talking much more extreme scenarios, but Look, you know, ultimately, you know, if you are an equity partner and, you know, pre-feasibility stage, you know, your returns are looking like, say, 25, 30% and you get to 40, 50%. Yes, makes sense because there is growth that is pushing the, the profits up and that makes a lot more sense. I think where people get mistaken is they look at the post-feasibility. So they look at the end feasibilities of what the real profit was delivered versus what the projected profit was. Um, and they look at those deals that these developers have done in the past and then make the decisions based on those older deals thinking that, you know, the returns would be similar. And so every project is different. Every feasibility is different. You know, ensure that, you know, you are identifying the flaws in the feasibility and asking questions. No question is a dumb question. And yeah. if a developer does get annoyed, you walk away because you know that um, there is something hiding beneath the hood or, you know, under the yeah. car. Yeah, so one of the points that you raise, Moss, is you know, don't make the decision about investing into a project based solely on the percentage returns that you're going to get. Again, going back, reiterating, make sure you understand the deal. You know, a higher return isn't always going to be the best outcome. Yes. Uh, because, you know, just with any project, any anything that you put your money into, uh, I used to work with 
the regulator, one of the things that we always learned was you've got to be willing to to lose that amount. Are you willing to lose that amount? Because that is the worst, 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 worst case scenario. So it only invests how much you are willing to lose in that regard. Definitely. That is the worst. More often than not, you either get, you know, best case scenario, you get your money, money plus interest. The next best case is that you get your money back. Yes. And then the next, next, next best case is that you don't get all your money back, but you get some money back. Some money back, yes. Some money back. And it's, again, I think that's a good segue in talking about how do you protect your investment, right? So, you know, some of the ways to protect your investment is seeking personal guarantees or on the assets of those directors or those developers. I think that's the key. Seeking caveats on the land, um, being a, a unit holder to the asset in itself. Now, being a first mortgagee, I think, you know, that beats pretty much everything where you are holding the land freehold uh, and you're bringing the, the finance as a second mortgagee potentially, right? So, you know, those are some of the key ways to basically protect yourself, making sure that you have some sort of control over the asset. And so, you know, if you're holding the caveat, for example, you know, even the banks cannot force you to take that caveat out unless you're paid out. So you need to understand some of these things as well. Yeah, absolutely. What are some of the legal um, agreements and considerations you think our audience need to be aware of? And again, get legal advice, but in terms of what what you've used, you've used or you've seen? Look, when you're talking about JV agreements and legal agreements, they need to be expansive, extensive, and very well thought through. You know, who is doing what, who is responsible of what, who is actioning what, you know, especially if you are going as an equity partner on a JV deal. Because I, I can tell you this, you know, people fight, brothers fight, families fight when it comes to money, when, when there is money involved. And so, you need to think of every scenario that is out there and make sure that these agreements are done as much as an arm's length transaction as possible. I've come across scenarios where a, a JV person wants to take an exit in the middle of the project. How do you, you know, cater for those? Or a you know, person who has done a JV dies, God forbid. You know, how do you cater for those? And so it's important that the JV agreement is an airtight agreement that does not let anyone take an exit you know, without you know, while taking the financial benefit, you know, and so there are various ways to protect your investment because every time a person leaves uh, from a JV agreement, there is a hole that needs to be filled because they take that equity with them, right? Yeah. And so if that happens during the peak of the project where you're most exposed to the debt, all of a sudden the project now needs that money to continue and the longer you hold, the more it costs you and that could be a biggest failure for the project. So, so I always say this to all my clients is, you know, people should be married to the project, you know, forget who the person is, who your equity partner is, who the development manager is. Ultimately, everyone is married to the project yeah. and the success of the project, you know. Yes, you know, the relationship matters. But when it comes to JV partnerships, ensure that this is a very well thought through agreement that you're putting up there. And with no surprises, you know, try to you know, don't go on handshakes, don't go on good faith. And, you know, oh, I've known him for 20 years. I've seen friendships of years and years broken down yeah. because of these JV agreements. Absolutely. And it does. I mean, it's 
the good and the bad thing about JVs is that because you're if you're you're talking about a project, there is a generally a finite time that you're that you're in that agreement. So your that partnership, hopefully, it doesn't take too long. But it does mean if things go a bit sour, you just have to put up with it for a few months or a few years. It's not a marriage in that regard. So yeah, they, but what we're we're highlighting there is that you've just got to consider all the. Um, the worst case scenarios when you are drafting up JV agreement. I do want to raise something here, which we haven't heard for a while, but be aware that there are still people out there that do set up, I guess, when they're doing fundraising, like a Ponzi scheme. Yes. Um, and what that means is that they're, they're using your funds to fund another project and then another project, and and then and, and getting more people to to invest in it so that they can pay you out. And and these these were quite prevalent when developers were offering monthly payouts. So if they said, "Yeah, we're going to pay you ten percent a month, or we're going to pay out your twenty percent per annum in a monthly basis." Something that you raised before is the truth with most developers. If they don't have the money until the very end, so how do they end up paying their investors a monthly return? Really needs to be from all the money that they get. Definitely, else. definitely. And look, I mean, I think that's a very, very important point. A, a lot of people don't realize that they are putting that money towards not a particular investment, but into a development fund. You know, that has. All the bells and whistles, you know, it would have an AFSL license, you know, they would make it look like, you know, they are fully compliant, etc. everything. But understanding that those development funds could be, you know, in cash flow problems, could be in a lot of losses, and they are catching up on those losses from some of the profitable projects that they're doing, right? So yeah, it just takes one project to create that domino effect. And all of us are in all of their security are being called upon um, by a mortgagee or by a financier or no bank lender, you know, who is waiting and twiggling their thumbs, you know, waiting for that to happen because naturally that's, they don't want that intentionally, but, you know, that's how they actually make a lot of money, right? Understand that, especially when you come into the development space in the development world, a lot of non-banking financing or fund management happens through here, right? You know, and these people are developers themselves. They, it's not that they are not developers. So it's important for you to understand that they would not take, you know, more than two seconds to basically take over their project and get that money back quite quickly. And they have no intention or interest to finish off the project. All they care about is getting their money out and selling this to the next person or, or, or cashing it out. So it's important that, you know, your risks may not be protected if you are not the first mortgage or there is not enough money in the deal. Even if there is money in the deal, sometimes what tends to happen is because that amount wasn't raised or that cash wasn't available and the construction couldn't finish, for example, these loan sharks would still come in and basically sell off the project and get their money back. And so you, know, you need to understand some of these intricacies that just because there is money in the project doesn't mean that you would be paid out. And again, there is numerous number of examples, you know, jump on ASIC, you know, look at managed schemes and you would see countless number of examples about how these Ponzi schemes or these development, you know, take place and how people are being ripped off. Yeah, and and you know, the, the, it doesn't always necessarily mean that that every developer is is 
is going in with the intention to rip people off. They're absolutely, absolutely not. A lot of developers are, are doing the right thing. And sometimes, you know, it, it is just a matter, it could just be a matter of, you know, we've had a really rough few years in the development space. Like, build costs have gone up a phenomenal amount. Like, labor shortages are, are still, we're still feeling the ripple effect of that. You can see that builders are going to voluntary administration. So, it is a really hard space in the development space. So, if, if something does go wrong with the, the project, it's not necessarily a reflection of that it was a bad development, that it was a bad, you know, that bad, bad project management. There are some things that are out of control Definitely. of the developers. So, you know, that's why it's really important when you're deciding to invest in any project that you are putting in funds that you are willing, not willing, that if you do lose that, it is not going to be your whole life savings. And it's a very important point that you make and you would see this time and time again that people keep de- investing in this with the same developers because there is that repo, there is that connection, there is that uh, relationship that they've built with these developers. They trust their experience, they've seen how they work and so, you know, you would see people accepting a lower return for a very professional developer because they know that, you know, this pe- person has done this, this time and time again and so they would forego 20, 25% return and accept a 10% or even a 12% return in some developments because the reputation of the developer there know that, you know, he is not going anywhere. He has done this countless number of times and, you know, that uh, that easiness of, you know, knowing that this money is not going anywhere is definitely there together with, you know, some of the better securities offered by the developer. Yeah, yeah. What are a few other considerations in terms of the developer that you feel that people need to look further into? Look, I'm a big believer that the developer needs to bring their skin in the game. And if they don't have the skin in the game, you know, they could be self-serving at any given point in time and walk out of the deal and you are there basically to suffice. So it's very important uh, from my perspective, at least, to see what skin the developer has in the game, be it, you know, lined up with the profit share you know not charging any you know higher management fees you know you see all of these management agreements that the developer signs with a jv partnership or an equity or or a unit trust etc to be basically getting paid during during the build or during the construction or during the development phase so it's important to understand some of these things also what are the exit strategies you know Build is one exit strategy. You know, what other exit strategies has a developer considered? You know, for example, if the build starts going up, you know, is it better to just sell and flip? You know, uh, a lot of the sites that, you know, were bought in 2019 and 18, if you are developing them in 21, 22, 23, you would have caught significant amount of growth. And so build does not make real, real sense. And so why don't they just take an exit? Now, it's also important to consider who is the builder, who is the architect, because builder plays a very big role into the development space too. And so if there is good relationships with the builder, it is great, it is good, but you need to also understand that, you know, a lot of these builders might have kickbacks coming back to the developers as well, because, you know, that's one way to hide the commissions that they might be charging within the deal. So, you know, always get the tenders, always push for tenders, make sure that you understand the build cost side of things. You're not just dependent on the builder that is on the deal. A lot of the developers do that. You know, I myself do that as well, where I have a preferred builder that I would always reach out to, but 
I would always, you know, give that offer to the client. Look, you know, go and seek a quote from your builder or whoever you want to. And, you know, let's compare and, you know, do an honest exercise of whoever is cheaper. And again, you know, the developer should be married to the project, not so much to the consultants that they are working with. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, overall, be wary of returns that just don't, that don't make sense. Like if there's a gut feel as well, I mean, there's the numbers. And then if there's something that you sort of go, I just don't feel right about this, right? Don't be afraid to walk away. There's lots of deals around. There's lots of opportunities around. And don't ever feel pressured that anyone make you feel formal. <laughs> definitely, definitely. There is no formal. I think uh, you feel that, you know, there are people who are paid to raise money and to understand that when you're talking to someone on the sales line or someone who is, you know, popped up on your Facebook, you know, who's saying, hey, invest this money and I invest the money here as well. Understand that these are salespeople raising money, taking commission or cut out of the, the money that you are paying. So it's important to understand that they are not the developers. Go and speak out to the actual developer. Talk to us a bit about, Cheryl, about your community that you have set up. I think that's a wonderful place. You know, let's give it a shout out and a call out of, you know, the two communities that you run predominantly for developers. Yeah, so, well, it's Property Development Australia. That's one of the communities. The other one is more like a sister community where it's Property Development Australia, Sites and Deals. So um, with the deals, Sites and Deals uh, page, it's basically people who have you know, they have sites they're selling or people are looking for deals, whether it's JV partners or whichever. That sort of happens there. We don't make any any guarantees or assurances as to what happens there. It's like, you know, people can people can um talk to to each other and then connect. But property development Australia is the community where it provides that level of support for other developers, for opportunities for them to to share their experience, to ask questions because it can be a bit of a lonely space and also connect, you know, collaborate, connect and create. I always say it's like the more that you connect with people in whatever industry you're in, it's not about what you know, it's who you know. Definitely. And the more that you're able to be able to say, I'm going to leverage off different people with the knowledge that I'm keen to keen to grow, then you are more likely to succeed and, and the people around you succeed as well. 100%. Beautiful words. There's parting words, Cheryl. I think that's a, a wonderful call out. You know, while you hear a lot of horror stories, this is an amazing community that Cheryl and the team has created for people, you know, who share the same values, who are there out there helping each other out in this lonely space to ensure that we are all being successful at the same time. Yeah, Again, thank, thank you for listening you. to us. Uh, if you have any comments, if you have, uh, for the viewers and listeners, if you have any stories to share in relation to the developers or the JVs that you've done, money that you've made, you know, please do, you know, follow into the comments and, you know, share those stories with us. Reach out to us if you want to share any of your stories with us in relation to developer JVs and whether things have gone amazingly well or amazingly poor, you know, we would love to hear them. Uh, keep smiling, keep investing, stay safe. This is Moss and Cheryl checking out. Ciao. Adios. Thank you. Bye-bye.